Part One, Chapter Five, Part One of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part One, Chapter Five, Part One. The Tea. One. Tea is ready, Mr. Cannon," said Mr. Hame in his most courteous style, coming softly into George's room. And George looked up at the old man's wrinkled face and down at his crimson slippers with the benevolent air of a bookworm permitting himself to be drawn away from an ideal world into the actual. Glasses on the end of George's nose would have set off the tableau, but George had outgrown the spectacles which had disfigured his boyhood. As a fact, since his return that afternoon from Mrs. John's, he had, to the detriment of modesty and the fostering of conceit, accomplished some further study for the final, although most of the time had been spent in dreaming of women and luxury. All right, said he, I'll come. I don't think that lamp's been very well trimmed today, said Mr. Hay apologetically, sniffing. Does it smell? Well, I do notice a slight odour. I'll open the window, said George heartily. He rose, pulled the curtains and opened the front French window with a large gesture. The wild, raw, damp air of Sunday night rushed in from the nocturnal grove and instantly extinguished the lamp. Oh! exclaimed Mr. Hayne, rather nervously. Save me the trouble, said George. As he emerged after Mr. Hayne from the dark room, he was thinking that it was ridiculous not to have electricity, and that he must try to come to some arrangement with Mr. Hayne for the installation of electricity. Fancy oil lamps in the middle of London in the twentieth century. Shocks were waiting in George's mind for Mr. Hayne. He intended, if he could, to get the room on the first floor empty since the departure of Marguerite, and to use it for a bedroom, while keeping the ground-floor room exclusively for work and for society. His project would involve shocks also for Mr. Edwin Clayhanger in the five towns who would be called upon to pay, but George had an airy confidence in the ability of his stepfather to meet such shocks in a satisfactory manner. To George's surprise, Mr. Alfred Prince was in the sitting-room. Shabby and creased, as usual, he looked far more like a clerk in some establishment where clerks were not morally compelled to imitate dandies than like an etcher of European renown. But also, as usual, he was quietly at ease and conversational, and George at once divined that he had been divided with the object of relieving the social situation created by the presence of the brilliant young lodger at tea. This tea was the first meal to be taken by George with Mr. and Mrs. Hayne for he was almost never at home on Sunday afternoons, and he was not expected to be at home. The table showed, as Mr. Hames' nervousness had shown, that the importance of the occasion had been realised. It was an obviously elaborate table. The repast was ready in every detail. The teapot was under the cosy, the cover was over the hot crumpets. Mrs. Hame alone lacked. "'Where's Mrs?' asked George lightly. Mr. Hame had not come into the room. I don't know, said Mr. Prince. She brought the tea in a minute ago. You've been working this afternoon? At that moment, Mr. Hame entered. He said, Mrs. Hame isn't feeling very well. She's upstairs. She says she's sure she'll be all right in a little while. In the meantime, she prefers us to go on with our tea. Mr. Prince and Mr. Hame looked at each other, and George looked at Mr. Hame. The older man showed apprehension. The strange idea of unconquerable destiny crossed George's mind. 
destiny clashing ruthlessly with ambition and desire. The three males sat down in obedience to the wish of the woman who had hidden herself in the room above. All of them were dominated by the thought of her. They did not want to sit down and eat and drink, and they were obliged to, to do so by the invisible volitional force of which Mr. Hame was the unwilling channel. Mr. Hame, highly self-conscious, began to pour out the tea. Mr. Prince, highly self-conscious, suggested that he should make himself useful by distributing the crumpets while they were hot. George, highly self-conscious, accepted a crumpet. Mr. Prince chatted. George responded in a brave, worldly fashion. Mr. Hame said, yes, yes, very absently. And then Mrs. Hame appeared, smiling in the doorway. Ah, breathed everybody, assuaged. Ah. Mr. Hame moved from in front of the tea tray to the next seat. Mrs. Hame was perhaps somewhat pale, but she gave a sincere, positive assurance that she was perfectly well again. Reassurance spread throughout the company. Forebodings vanished, hearts lightened, gladness reigned. The excellence of crumpets became apparent. And all this swift, wonderful change was brought about by the simple entry of the woman. But beneath the genuine relief and satisfaction of the men, there stirred vaguely the thought of the mysteriousness of women, of the entire female sex. Mrs. Hame, charwoman, was just as mysterious as any other woman. As for George, despite the exhilaration which he could feel rising in him, effortless and unsought, he was preoccupied by more than women's mysteriousness. The conception of destiny lingered and faintly troubled him. It was as though he had been walking on a clear path through a vast and empty and safe forest, and the eyes of a tiger had gleamed for an instant in the bush, and gone. Not a real tiger, and if a real tiger, then a tiger that would never recur, and the only tiger in the forest. Yet the entire forest was transformed. Mrs. Hayne was wearing the blue sateen. It was a dress unsuited to her because it emphasised her large bulk. But it was her best dress. It shone and glittered. It imposed. Her duty was to wear it on that Sunday afternoon. She was shy without being self-conscious. To preside over a society consisting of young bloods, etchers of European renown and pillars of the architectural profession was an ordeal for her. She did not pretend that it was not an ordeal. She did not pretend that the occasion was not extraordinary. She was quite natural in her calm confusion. She was not even proud, being perhaps utterly incapable of social pride. Her husband was proud for her. He looked at her earnestly, wistfully. He could not disguise his anxiety for her success. Was she equal to the role? She was. Of course she was. He had never doubted that she would be, he said to himself. His pride increased, scarcely escaped being fatuous. I must congratulate you on the new front doormat, Mrs. Hayne, said Mr. Prince, with notable conversational tact. I felt it at once in the dark. Mrs. Hayne smiled. I do like a good doormat, she said. It saves so much work, I always think. I told Mr. Hayne I thought we needed a new one, and bless me if he didn't take me straight out to buy one. The new doormat expressed Mrs. Hame's sole and characteristic criticism of the organism into which she had so unassumingly entered. Secure in the adoration of Mr. Hame, she might safely have turned the place upside down and proved to the grove that she could act the mistress with the best of them. 
but she changed nothing except the doormat. The kitchen and scullery had already been hers before the eye of Mr. Hame had fallen upon her. She was accustomed to them, and had largely fashioned their arrangements. Her own furniture, such of it as was retained, had been put into the spare bedroom and the kitchen, and was hardly noticeable there. The dramatic thing for her to do would have been to engage another charwoman. But Mrs. Hame was not dramatic. She was accommodating. She fitted herself in. The answer to people who asked what Mr. Hame could see in her was that what Mr. Hame first saw was her mere way of existing, and that in the same way she loved. At her tea-table, as elsewhere, she exhibited no special quality. She said little. She certainly did not shine. Nevertheless, the three men were quite happy and at ease, because her way of existing soothed and re-inspired them. George, especially, got gay, and he narrated the automobile adventure of the afternoon with amusing gusto. He was thereby a sort of hero, and he liked that. He was bound by his position in the world, and by his clothes and his style, to pretend to some extent that the adventure was much less extraordinary to him than it seemed to them. The others made no pretense. They were open-mouthed. Their attitude admitted frankly that above them was a world to which they could not climb, that they were not familiar with it, and knew nothing about it. They admired George. They put it to his credit that he was acquainted with these lofty matters, and moved carelessly and freely among them. And George, too, somehow thought that credit was due to him, and that his superiority was genuine. And do you mean to say she's never met you before? exclaimed Mr. Hayne. Never in this world, Mr. Prinks remarked calmly. You must have had a very considerable effect on her, then. His eyes twinkled. George flushed slightly. The idea had already presented itself to him with great force. Oh, no, he negligently pooh-poohed it. Well, does she go about asking every man she meets what his Christian name is? I expect she just does. There was silence for a moment. Mrs. Hame refilled a cup. Something will have to be done soon about these motor-cars, observed Mr. Hame at length, sententiously, in the vein of mustard and cress. That's very evident. They cost so much, said Mr. Prince. Why, they cost as much as a house, some of them. More, said George. Nay, nay, Mr. Hame protested. The point had come at which his imagination halted. Anyhow, you had a lucky escape, said Mr. Prince. You might have been lamed for life, or anything. George laughed. I am always lucky, said he, he thought. I wonder whether I am. He was afraid. Mrs. Hayne was halfway towards the door when any of the men noticed what she was about. She had risen silently and quickly. She could manoeuvre that stout frame of hers with surprising facility. There was a strange, silly look on her face as she disappeared, and the face was extremely pale. Mr. Hayne showed alarm, and Mr. Prince concern. Mr. Hayne's hands clasped the arms of his chair. He bent forward hesitatingly. What? Then was heard the noise of a heavy substance, apparently on the stairs. George was out of the room first, but the other two were instantly upon him. Mrs. Hayne had fallen at the turn of the stairs. Her body was distributed along the little half-landing there. My God, she's fainted, muttered Mr. Hayne. You'd better get her into the bedroom, said Mr. Prince, with awe. The trouble had come back, but in a far more acute form. 
The prostrate and unconscious body, all crooked and heaped in the shadow, intimidated the three men, convicting them of helplessness and lack of ready wit. George stood aside and let the elder pair pass him. Mr. Hame hurried up the stairs, bent over his wife, and seized her under the arms. Mr. Prince took her by the legs. They could not lift her. They were both thin little men, quite unaccustomed to physical exertion. Mrs. Hame lay like a giantess, immovably recumbered between their puny, straining figures. "'Here, let me try,' said George eagerly, springing towards the group. With natural reluctance, Mr. Hayne gave way to him. George stooped and braced himself to the effort. His face was close to the blanched, blind face of Mrs. Hayne. He thought she looked very young, astonishingly young in comparison with either Hayne or Prince. Her complexion was damaged, but not destroyed. Little fluffy portions of her hair seemed absolutely girlish. Her body was full of nice curves, which struck George as most enigmatically pathetic. But indeed the whole of her was pathetic, very touching, very precious, and fragile. Even her large, shiny, shapeless boots and the coarse sateen stuff of her dress affected him. A lump embarrassed his throat. He suddenly understood the feelings of Mr. Hayne towards her. She was inexpressibly romantic. He lifted her torso easily, and pride filled him because he could do easily what others could not do at all. Her arms trailed limp. Mr. Hayme and Mr. Prince jointly raised her lower limbs. George staggered backwards up the remainder of the stairs. As they steered the burden into the bedroom, where a candle was burning, Mrs. Hayme opened her eyes, and, gazing vacantly at the ceiling, murmured in a weak, tired voice, "'I'm all right. It's nothing. Please put me down.' "'Yes, yes, my love,' said Mr. Hayne, agitated. "'They deposited her on the bed. "'She sighed, then smiled. "'A slight flush showed on her cheek under the light of the candle "'which Mr. Prince was holding aloft. "'Mysterious creature, with the mysterious forces of life "'flowing and ebbing incomprehensibly within her. "'To George she was marvellous, she was beautiful, "'as she lay defenceless and silently appealing. "'Thank you, Mr. Cannon, thank you very much.' said Mr. Hayne, turning to the strong man. It was a dismissal. George modestly departed from the bedroom, which was no place for him. After a few minutes, Mr. Prince also descended. They stood together at the foot of the stairs in the draught from the open window of George's room. "'Hadn't I better go for a doctor?' George suggested. "'That's what I said,' replied Mr. Prince. "'But she won't have one.' "'But, well, she won't.' The accommodating, acquiescent dame, with scarcely strength to speak, was defeating all three of them on that one point. "'What is it?' asked George confidentially. "'Oh, I don't suppose it's anything, really.' 2. That George should collect the tea-things together on the tray, and brush, and fold the cloth, and carry the loaded tray downstairs into the scullery, was sufficiently strange. But it was very much more strange that he should actually have the idea of washing up the tea-things himself. In his time in the domestic crises of Bursley, he had boyishly helped ladies to wash up, and he reckoned that he knew all about the operation. There he stood, between this kitchen and the scullery, elegantly attired, with an inquiring eye upon the kettle of warm water on the stove, debating whether he should make the decisive gesture of emptying the kettle into the large tin receptacle that lay on the slopstone. Such was the miraculous effect on him of Mrs. Hayme's simplicity, her weakness, and her predicament. 
Mrs. Hayne was a different woman for him now than he had, when he had carried her upstairs and laid her all limp and girlish on the solemn conjugal bed. He felt quite sure that old Hayne was incapable of washing up. He assuredly did not want to be caught in the act of washing up, but he did want to be able to say in his elaborately nonchalant manner, answering a question about the disappearance of the tea-things, I thought I might as well wash up while I was about it. And he did want Mrs. Hayne to be put in a flutter by the news that Mr. George Cannon had washed up for her. The affair would probably cause a sensation. He was about to begin taking the risks of premature discovery when he heard a noise above. It was Mr. Hayne at last descending the stairs to the ground floor. George started. He had been alone in the lower parts of the house for a period which seemed long. Mr. Prince had gone to the studio, promising to return later. The bedroom containing Mr. and Mrs. Hayne had become for him the abode of mystery. The entity of the enchanted house had laid hold of his imagination. He had thought of Marguerite as she used to pervade the house, and of his approaching interview with her at the Manresa Road studio. He had thought very benevolently of Marguerite, and also of Mr. and Mrs. Hayne. He had involved them all three in his mind in a net of peace and goodwill. He saw the family quarrel as something inevitable, touching, absurd. The work of a maleficent de destiny which he might somehow undo and exorcise by the magic act of washing up, to be followed by other acts of a more diplomatic and ingenious nature. And now the dull, distant symptoms of Mr. Hame on the stairs suddenly halted him at the very outset of his benignant machinations. He listened. If the peace of the world had depended upon his washing up, he could not have permitted himself to be actually seen in the role of kitchen girl by Mr. Hayne. So extreme was his lack of logic and right reason. It was a silence, a protracted silence, and then Mr. Hayne unmistakably came down the basement stairs, and George thanked God that he had not allowed his impasse to wash up or run away with his discretion to the ruin of his dignity. Mr. Hayne, hesitating in the kitchen doorway, peered in front of him as if at a loss. George had shifted the kitchen lamp from its accustomed place. "'I'm here,' said George, moving slightly in the dim light. "'I thought I might as well make myself useful and clear the table for you. "'How is she going on?' He spoke cheerfully, even gaily, and he expected Mr. Hayne to be courteously appreciative, perhaps enthusiastic in gratitude. Uh, "'Mrs. Hayne is quite recovered, thank you. "'It was only a passing indisposition,' said Mr. Hayne using one of his ridiculously stilted phrases. His tone was strange. It was very strange. Good! exclaimed George, with a gaiety that was now forced, a bravado of gaiety. He thought, The old chump evidently doesn't like me interfering. Silly old pompous ass! Nevertheless, his attitude towards the huffy landlord, if scornful, was good-humoured and indulgent. Then he noticed that Mr. Hayne held in his hand a half-sheet of note-paper which disturbingly seemed familiar. "'What is the meaning of this, Mr. Cannon?' Mr. Hayne demanded, advancing towards the brightness of the lamp and extending the paper. He was excessively excited. Excitement always intensified his age. The offered document was the letter which George had that morning received from Marguerite. The missive was short, a mere note, but its terms could leave no doubt as to the relations between the writer and the recipient. Moreover, it ended with a hieroglyphic sign, several times repeated, 
whose significance is notorious throughout the civilised world. Where did you get that? muttered George, with a defensive menace half-formed in his voice. He faltered it. His mood had not yet become definitive. Mr. Hame answered, I have just picked it up in the hall, sir. The wind must have blown it off the table in your room, and the door was left open. I presume that I have the right to read papers I find lying about in my own house. George was dashed. On returning home from Mrs. John's lunch, he had changed his suit for another one, almost equally smart, but of Angora and therefore more comfortable. He liked to change. He had taken the letter out of a side pocket of the jacket and put it with his watch, money and other kit on the table while he changed, and he placed everything back into its proper pockets, everything except the letter. Carelessness. A moment of negligence had brought about the irremediable. The lovely secret was violated. The whole of his future life, and of Marguerite's future life, seemed to have been undermined and contaminated by that single act of omission. Marguerite wrote seldom to him because of the risks, but precautions had been arranged for the occasions when she had need to write, and she possessed a small stock of envelopes addressed by himself, so that Mr. Hay might never by chance, picking up an envelope from the hall floor, see George's name in his daughter's hand. And now Mr. Hayman picked up an actual letter from the hall floor. And the fault for the disaster was George's own. May I ask, sir, are you engaged to my daughter? demanded Mr. Hayman, getting every instant still more excited. George had once before seen him agitated about Marguerite, but by no means to the same degree. He trembled. He shook. His dignity had a touch of the grotesque. Yet it remained dignity, and it enforced respect. For George, destiny seemed to dominate the kitchen and the scullery like a presence. He and the old man were alone together in that presence, and he was abashed. He was conscious of awe. The old man's mien accused him of an odious crime, of something base and shameful. Useless to argue with himself that he was entirely guiltless, that he had the right to be the betrothed of either Mr. Hame's daughter or any other girl, and to publish or conceal the betrothal as he chose and as she chose. Yes, useless. He felt, inexplicably, a criminal. He felt that he had committed an enormity. It was not a matter of argument. It was a matter of instinct. The old man's frightful and irrational resentment was his condemnation. He could not face the old man. He thought grievously, I'm up against this man. All politeness and conventions have vanished. It's the real inmost me and the real inmost him. Nobody else could take a part in the encounter. And he was sad, because he could not blame the old man. Could he blame the old man for marrying a charwoman? Why, he could only mar him for marrying the charwoman. In marrying the charwoman, the old man had done a most marvellous thing. Could he blame Marguerite? possible. Marguerite's behaviour was perfectly comprehensible. He understood Marguerite, and he understood her father. He sympathised with both of them. But Marguerite could not understand her father, and her father could not understand either his daughter or George. Never could they understand. He alone understood. And his understanding gave him a melancholy, hopeless feeling of superiority, without at all lessening the strange conviction of guilt. He had got himself gripped by destiny. Destiny had captured all three of them, but not the fourth. 
The charwoman possessed the mysterious power to defy destiny. Perhaps the power lay in her simplicity. Fool, an accursed negligence had eternally botched his high plans for peace and goodwill. Yes, he said, I am. And how long have you been engaged, sir? Oh, since before Marguerite left here. He tried to talk naturally and calmly. And you've been living here all this time like a spy, a dirty spy. My daughter behaves to us in an infamous manner. She makes an open scandal, and all the time you're... George suddenly became very angry, and his anger relieved and delighted him. With intense pleasure he felt his anger surging within him. He frowned savagely, his eyes blazed, but he did not move. Excuse me, he interrupted with cold and dangerous fury. She didn't do anything of the kind. Mr. Hayne went wildly on, intimidated possibly by George's defiance, but desperate. And all the time, I say, you stay on here, deceiving us, spying on us, going every night to that wicked, cruel, shameful girl and tittle-tattling. Do you suppose that if we'd have the slightest idea? George walked up to him. I'm not going to stand here and listen to you talking about Marguerite like that. Their faces were rather close together. George forced himself away by a terrific effort and left the kitchen. Jack and apes! George swung round, very pale. Then with a hard laugh, he departed. He stood in the hall and thought of Mrs. Hame upstairs. The next moment, he got his hat and overcoat and was in the street. A figure appeared in the gloom. It was Mr. Prince. Hello, going out. How are things? Oh, fine. He could scarcely articulate. A ghastly sob impeded the words. Tears gushed into his eyes. The dimly glowing oblongs and the dark facades of the grove seemed unbearably tragic. End of part one, chapter five, part one.